Welcome to the Sports Pro Podcast. Hi everyone and welcome once again to the Sports Pro Podcast. My name is Owen Connolly. I am the editor-at-large at Sports Pro. Hope you're well. Very happy to be back. Very happy to be back in the company of Sports Pro Deputy Editor Sam Carp. Hello, Sam. Hi, Owen. Thanks for having me on. How are you doing? Not too bad, Sam. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Very well. Glad to hear it. And joining us from behind the decks, Sports Pro podcast producer and Sports Pro staff writer, Ed Dixon. Hi, Ed. Hi, Owen. How are you? Very well, thanks, Ed. How are you? Good, good. All well, thanks. Yeah, stepping up. Here we go. (laughs) Look forward to it. We are going to be talking about Sports Pro's 2021 destinations report in the first part of the podcast. In part two, we're going to hear about what goes on inside sports venues or what to expect inside sports venues over the next decade, evangelizing the future of sports venues with a session from Sports Pro Live, Henk Van Raan, the Chief Innovation Officer at the Johan Cruyff Arena in Amsterdam, home of Ajax, and our own Chris Stone, the Sports Pro Event Content Manager. Uh, They spoke last week about how the stadium experience is going to evolve in the next few years. Um, but guys, yeah, we we actually, in some parts of the world, have a stadium experience at the moment for the first time in, in quite a while, or certainly increasingly seeing events taking place at a bigger and bigger scale. We had uh, an indoor pandemic record in Texas at the weekend, Canelo Alvarez beating Billy Joe Saunders in a super middleweight boxing match in front of what was the number, guys? I know one of you will have this at your fingertips, but it was somewhere north of 70,000 spectators in the AT&T Stadium in Arlington. 73,126, to be exact. There you go. And we've seen a lot of conversation about the destination of the UEFA Champions League final, Sam. Um, Istanbul, Turkey moving back into lockdown. London potentially a venue, although it now looks likely once again to be Portugal, where Chelsea and Manchester City will play. Um, But I think fair to say the course of the pandemic, public health conditions being what they are, 2021 is a it's a very different conversation. I mean, you know, we daily are getting different updates on what kind of Olympics we're going to expect in Tokyo. Obviously, we have the tragedy unfolding in India right now, which means that the IPL, which was already behind closed doors, has been cancelled. We kind of have to put 2021 in a box when it comes to destinations, even though we are having these conversations about where certain events are going to take place. Yeah, it's all quite. It's interesting to watch unfold at the moment, um, especially Saturday. Uh, well, I suppose early hours of Sunday morning here in the UK with Canelo Saunders, it almost looked otherworldly seeing that many fans inside an indoor venue um after what we've seen over the past sort of 12 13 months um you know some would say it's quite an interesting time to try and break the record uh, for an into, for the for a uh, for a crowd for an indoor boxing event um but at the same time texas kind of has a bit of a record of doing this in recent times i think it was um the dallas cowboys in during the nfl season last year had by far the highest average attendance. I think something close to 30,000 was the official figure, which was more than double of the the second nearest team. Um, 
and also the Texas Rangers. They played their their first game of the MLB season in front of a in front of a sold out crowd, I believe, at, at, at their ground. So it's kind of as you're looking at this, you're sort of seeing. I think what you're seeing is certain destinations emerging as options in a way, um, as kind of coming out of this pandemic, they're putting themselves forward as, as viable options for event organizers that maybe can't stage their events where they want to. Um, so obviously Texas is kind of throwing its throwing its hat into the ring for that. Um, you're seeing the UK do the same in, in some, some, some instances, dating back even to when UEFA was kind of considering what to do with the Euros. Um, I know the British government was quite keen to say that they were ready to, to host events if needed and kind of have done the same with the Champions League final, as you alluded to before. So yeah, as you say, I think as we as we move forward into this year, I think what we're going to see is almost almost kind of similar to what we saw last year in a way, in the sense that there are going to be certain parts of the world where the you know cases aren't quite as high. Um, in this, in the only I suppose the main difference this year is that there's going to be certain countries where the vaccine rollout is further along, so places are going to be in a in a better position to to put themselves forward to not only host these events but host these events with some spectators in attendance as well so i think that's kind of i think that's kind of the main thing that we're going to see this year is that while things aren't necessarily going to be going to be held in the in the shape that they were kind of originally intended we are going to see more places opening up and kind of able to step in and put themselves forward to do so mm. and we're going to see seasonal factors as well i suppose come into effect here with um with, with... Um, the course of the of the virus alongside uh, that vaccine rollout, as you mentioned, and I think probably much less travel. I mean, we already know that Tokyo twenty twenty is happening without any uh, international fans, at least, um, and I suspect that will not be the only major event that goes ahead with uh, with that stipulation or something like it. It's going to be very complex for uh, for fans to make international trips in in great numbers um although i know that that is expected to happen for the champions league final when when certain changes are made within uh, the eu and europe <laughs> of which the uk is uh, now kind of excellent part but the uh, the typical conversation we would have about a destination and what being a sporting destination means and what it means to host a major event in this way it's on hold for now yeah, definitely. And um, I think what's also going to be interesting is that you might see certain destinations being perhaps opportunistic in this situation. Uh, I know that, for example, last year, there were quite a few, there were quite a few that kind of came to the fore. So for example, you had the, the UAE, which staged the IPO and the UFC's Fight Islands, uh, Budapest um, became the host of the International Swimming League second season, also stepped into stage a number of European football games. Portugal did the same last year with the Champions League final eight and could even get the the final this year. Um, and it's also, I suppose, uh, destinations are going to be thinking about the reasons that they host major events. So it might not make a lot of sense for some destinations to stage them this year, given that the objectives that they have for staging an event won't really necessarily align. So I think that one of the one of the events that's already been moved to 2022 is the 2021 Women's Rugby World Cup, which was, I believe I'm right in saying, was going to be in New Zealand. And kind of one of the main reasons for them staging that event was to was to drive international tourism. So obviously that's kind of not something that they're going to be able to do this year. Whereas you look at a destination like Saudi Arabia, for example, their objectives for hosting a major event, while eventually maybe to drive 
drive more tourism is first of all to sort of change the perception around it as a nation so you're already seeing even today i think um eddie hearn has come out and said that saudi arabia is likely to host the anthony joshua tyson fury fight in um in august um and for me it wouldn't necessarily be a surprise if we saw saudi arabia kind of offering itself forward to to host more events um before the year's over while um while they can't be staged in their kind of the first choice so to speak so and i think it would be kind of that might even pose a bit of a challenge for some sports given that you know in the past they may well have been able to turn down saudi arabia on kind of moral grounds um what a lot of people know is that you know a country like Saudi Arabia is going to ho- uh, offer quite a significant hosting fee as well. So I think there'll be a challenge for sports in that sense as well. And so, yeah, I think there's two si- There's a few sides to it. There's there's the kind of objectives that these destinations have in terms of why they host major events. And also on the other side of that, you'll have sports kind of trying to weigh up and decide what makes most sense in terms of where they take take their events. Yeah, and I suppose that will, that will particularly come to a head as we face up to a, a kind of calendar crunch that has been looming over the last 18 months and the the opportunity or the option rather to just turf something into the into the following year is uh, receding in some cases right let's talk about the destinations report what were what were some of the conversations you were having guys I'm gonna, ed i'm going to bring you in i know you were talking to copenhagen about their strategy but sam what was the what was the what was the broader remit for for the piece yeah so i suppose in previous years the destinations report probably would have been a lot more straightforward in terms of you primarily be asking these stakeholders kind of about you know what their cities have to offer what events they're going after whereas this year i suppose it was almost a little bit more interesting in a way there was kind of different angles to it in the sense that you could you could talk a lot more about what event hosting is actually going to look like in, in the wake of the pandemic, how destinations are kind of going to approach bidding for these events and the various different things that they're going to take into account. So I think we were, in putting together the report, we kind of wanted to give a bit of a broad overview of of how how the pandemic has impacted those conversations and how it will continue to do so. So I suppose some of the things to take into consideration will be sort of in the immediate aftermath of this is what destinations are going to be focusing on. So whether they're going to perhaps be focusing on more domestic events rather than international events, whether they're going to be thinking about protecting existing events that they're sort of already contracted to host. And then I suppose budget allocation as well as as those are going to have been quite significantly impacted by what's happened in the past 13, 14 months. Um, And then looking further ahead, I think some of the more interesting conversations were kind of around what the events are actually going to look like, um, you know, whether they do return to what they were before the pandemic or whether we're going to see some sort of hybrids adopted where you sort of have people competing in person, some people competing remotely, um, all of those sorts of things. And yeah, in, in putting that together, we've we've done kind of a broad overview piece, which has some, has some insight from Ian Edmondson, who was formerly of London and Partners. He played quite a, quite an important role in bringing the Olympics to to London in 2012. Um, we've also got some destination profiles in there. One of which you alluded to already, which Ed wrote about Copenhagen. Um, there's a piece on Ottawa, which our editorial director Michael Long has written. A city perhaps not quite as well known for sport as other urban centres like Toronto and Montreal and Canada, but um, 
but which you know has ambitions of hosting events of all of all types and, and sizes in the future. Yeah, and then there's a piece that I wrote about about Queensland, which, um, as I'm sure our listeners will know, was recently named as the preferred bidder for the 2032 Olympic Games. And yeah, and then uh, we've also got a bit on emerging destinations. Um, so basically, we've tried to pinpoint a few countries, some cities who have whose who's hosting ambitions have kind of marked themselves out as uh, as ones to watch in the years ahead, um, both in terms of kind of the the big major international events but also kind of some of the more the more niche events as well um so yeah uh, there's there's plenty in there plenty of sort of different uh different um, different size ambitions but um yeah lots of lots of interesting stuff to chew over for sure yeah and ed copenhagen is an interesting place to start because i feel like it was the the scale of city that was having long-term thoughts about what its host strategy would look like probably in the 2010s when you were starting to see this separation of cities like London for example or uh, let's you could just write down a list of the Olympic hosts to be honest London Los Angeles Paris um, places like that major centers that could host mega events uh, World Cups and and Olympics from other places where perhaps those events had had grown to too great a scale and so they are then thinking okay well maybe a region olympics is on the horizon for us at some point but what do we do what's our what's the end point what kind of what kind of ambition do we have and what are the right kind of events for us to host and of course that is now meeting broader questions about what sports events are going to look like um festivalization digitization all those type of things through the 2020s so what what were some of the things that you gleaned from your conversations with uh, with Copenhagen? Yeah, well, I built the piece as sort of Copenhagen being sort of an eco epicenter and it was, and, and it largely covers their commitment to sustainability. And that's, that's not a recent thing for Copenhagen. So it, it's kind of been just embedded in the DNA of the city. It's always been there, you know, it's, it's cycling is just sort of part of the culture there, for example, you know, and that's sort of in stark contrast to a lot of other sort of major hosting cities that are having to pivot their strategy to sort of meet these, Sort of climate climate targets um, and, and pressures, and indeed, so um, it was sort of ex- exploring that. And the, and the impression I've got with speak, speaking to Copenhagen is they're they're very comfortable with what their their offer is, their proposition is. It's they're not overly interested in trying to put a square peg in a round hole. I mean, sp- speaking to them, there was a a fleeting proposal a couple of years ago, maybe exploring the idea of a of a of a Grand Prix in Denmark, and that never never got off the ground just because it just would not fit the uh the 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 approach of the city would just be just one massive contradiction but also they also make a very big thing about it's not just about sort of attractions and sort of maybe gimmicky kind of events if you like it's 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 very much more about people and about and sharing those experiences and they want to host the kind of events that they feel will will sort of celebrate those so i mean the, the biggest thing they've gone on this year is the euros they've been they've been permitted to host up to eleven thousand fans in copenhagen at the stadium there and then beyond that they've got a number of uci events uh the tour de france grand grand depot in 2022 so for them it's got to be uh, a case of you know finding the right the right fit for them if you like and and they're also looking to position themselves as a leading well they already are a leading you know sort of eco city if you like but they've got a number of carbon neutral targets in the next couple of years and they want to use 
well, create an opportunity for sports, uh, sport events to be part of that journey with them when they come to Copenhagen, sort of be seen as responsible in that regard when it comes to the environment. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting point to explore that connection between identity and sustainability and the ways in which events can spring from local culture and spring from what's important uh, to, to a destination and, and what kind of, you know, what a destination can bring of itself um, to, to an event. What were some of the other approaches that, that they took to, to make that connection? I think they're very big into mass participation, that it could be whether you're looking to take part in an event, even something like the Copenhagen Marathon, which can attract, I think, up to about over 100,000 people that come and watch. So whether you're um, participating or attending just to watch an event, they're looking to they're looking to bring, uh, to sort of make it part of the culture. It's not a case of just, you know, dropping an event, dropping an event into, you know, a space that they've designated in the city for it. They try and sort of, sort of let it sort of seep into every kind of corner in Copenhagen. And and actually, it's kind of an, an example of the the size of the city that it's, you know, in comparison to other, you know, as you say, reel off any any major, you know, any major hosting city using Tokyo as an example, you know, for, for this year's Olympics. But Copenhagen, they can use their sort of comparatively modest size to their advantage where they can make sure that the, the event is sort of pre- prevalent throughout, which means that it's, you know, more people are going to be aware of it and therefore it's going to prompt more and more engagement as well. So that was, that was kind of one of the main things I've noticed that they really try and make it, you know, very much a sort of a milestone in, in the, um, in the sort of city's calendar, because they know, they know as a city that for the population, they need to keep attracting more, more events to the city to make it, to increase, to increase its appeal for the people living there. That's, that's, that's a key part of their objective really. And they are looking to, they are looking to diversify their so the, the events they're hosting, but it won't be at the cost of their values. Yeah, and you mentioned Euro twenty twenty. It's not quite going to be the spectacle that we all hoped for at the start of last year, but it's going to happen, and it's going to happen in cities including Copenhagen. What what was the value that they saw themselves getting out of uh, getting out of that event? Well, it goes back to the, the the point I made earlier that that it's you know it's it's arguably going to be the biggest event of the of the year. Well, certainly it's going to be football. Obviously, it's got the Olympics and hopefully uh, Fury Joshua to compete with, for example. But it is going to be one of those milestone events of the year. Obviously, when they when they applied to host, they weren't expecting a global pandemic, but they 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 knew it, it for them. It's one of those. It's one of those real kind of milestone events that they want to bring more of to the city that they feel matches matches their value. Uh, sorry, matches their values, I should say. I think as well it, it it ultimately just it will put them on the it will put them on the map because when you think Copenhagen, you don't ultimately necessarily think those those major events. So it, for them, it's it's it blends that global appeal with sort of the local values that, that I've mentioned. Yeah, something that I'm thinking ways in which something can be distinctive. And I wonder as well whether a trend that we'll see is along the mass participation lines, but events that spring from a destination a little bit more rather than the the, the, the kind of traveling circus model, which has been very successful for, for a lot of events. But um, the evolution of that relationship will be very much worth following, I think. 
But Sam, you were looking at the other end of the world. You were talking to hosting authorities down in Queensland, where, as you say, they are preparing for a likely, by no means definite, we are contractually stipulated to note, but a likely Olympic Games in 2032. What's the the picture there in Queensland? Well, yeah, you say um, not contractually yet, but I think it was, I think John Coates said... uh this week that Brisbane's on the on the final lap um so <laughs> I don't think it's too far away um but yeah obviously I think um Queensland you know their, their hosting ambition has been known for for quite some time now um dating back to Gold Coast 2018 I suppose which laid a lot of the groundwork for this 2032 bid in terms of the facilities and the infrastructure um a lot of which kind of is being is being used as part of as part of their proposal to the IOC, um, and then Sports Accord obviously was hosted a year later, uh, which exposed a lot of the key decision makers in, in the federation world to to the region. But I think kind of the the focus of this piece more what was in, what was kind of interesting about it is that you know while the world was sort of brought to a standstill last year, it felt like almost no one was kind of able to make any progress. Everyone was talking about how they sort of stopped and sort of took a kind of took a step back approach and looked at what they were looked at what they could do in the future Queensland kind of kept trucking along and almost reinforced its its credentials as a major event host so it, it became the site for a number of a number of Australian Australian sports in the wake of the pandemic so the AFL the NRL the Women's National Basketball League Super Netball as well um, so yeah I think even what was interesting with that is that you know even in a year when so much came to a standstill, Queensland was kind of still able to keep plodding along, um, keep hosting events, keep sort of highlighting the infrastructure that it has and the capabilities that it has to to host these major events. And I'm I'm sure that's probably something that that resonated with the IOC and that they took notice of. And you know, as as an onlooker, it's probably there's probably something to be said for being able to guarantee certainty in a year when there was so much uncertainty. Um, so I suppose that's probably something that was quite attractive to to the International Olympic Committee. And the relationship between Queensland and and the IOC is interesting, or the the conversation that's been going on between Queensland and the IOC, because you do have this is very much a, a regional Olympics, um, and Queensland is presenting itself as a region, as a, a sports region. Um, I know that Brisbane is is kind of the uh, one of the centres of that, but how does that change the way that they think about their event strategy? Yeah, it's an interesting one because I think, you know, I suppose what it does is it doesn't limit them. Yeah, it just it basically means that they're able to maximise everything that the region has to offer, um, rather than kind of as you say, Brisbane's kind of front and centre. But I think throughout they've been quite clear that this is going that. The 2032 Olympics, should it be awarded there, um, is something that's going to benefit the entire region. I think um, a press conference immediately after um, the preferred candidacy was announced, um, the the question was asked whether it's going to be referred to as Brisbane 2032 or Queensland 2032, and they said they hadn't decided yet. Which I just think kind of speaks to the fact that you know they're not limiting this; they are positioning this as as something for the entire region, and as um, it is a bid that basically they are able to maximise a lot of everything that the region has to offer. Yeah, on that point, Sam, about um, regional bids, I know that's a specific region of Australia, but um, I think think it's not unexpected to think that we're going to see more 
regional bids that maybe involve you know multiple countries within a certain area i mean just using again going back to uh, Denmark and Copenhagen, they put themselves forward as a host of uh, uh, the Women's European Championships in 2020, 2025. But um, in 2027, they're going to bid for the, it looks like they're going to bid for the, the Women's World Cup. And that will be part of a part of a bid alongside the other Nordic countries. So, and I think that ties into your point about, you know, not it not just benefiting, you know, a particular city, but the, wide, the wider region and sort of tap, tapping into that. Yeah, and I think it's, a trend that we could see popping up in in lots of different contexts and i mean going back to euro 2020 it's a bit of a shame we haven't seen that in its in its fullest incarnation just because of some of the other second tier uh event cities that we might have seen involved with it um budapest has already been mentioned and they might uh smart a bit at the uh, perception of them as a, as a second tier event city given the number of World Championships they've hosted in recent years, but places that haven't always had that major event outing, um, Dublin, which has had to drop off the um, the Euro 2020 list, you know, and, and and there are other cities of that size where you could see some kind of collegiate approach towards uh, towards staging the, the the very biggest events in the future, and um, you know the irony is that World Cups and Olympics are getting so big. That we're seeing, um, we're seeing that approach uh, required even even for the U.S. and Canada and Mexico in uh, in 2026. Guys, the other thing that you had a look at was some of the emerging host regions, host cities, host nations um, across the world. What are what are some of the things that that caught your eye there? Am I allowed to say their names, or is that giving things away? Uh, <laughs> I think um, I'll try and do this without giving their names away. I think what we were looking out for. With this, I mean, I suppose people could probably take some good educated, good educated guesses as to as to who's in there. But yeah, I think it was obviously you're kind of looking at cities that have been throwing their names into the hat a little bit more and more often recently for for those major events, whether it, you know whether it's an Olympics, whether it's a um, whether it's a World Championship. Um, but at the same time, it was kind of some. Of, it wasn't necessarily countries at large you'd also be looking at sort of smaller cities that have carved out a niche for themselves um and in recent years have started to have sort of started to implement hosting strategies have started to welcome some events already on some international events anyway on on that kind of scale so i think that's kind of what we're taking into account as well as you know regions that are developing quite quickly in terms of their infrastructure um in terms of facilities as well so so yeah i think it's this list is, is quite diverse, um, quite a few continents represented on there. Yeah, so yeah, it's kind of a combination of all those things, really. And um, as, as people will see when, when it gets published on the website on Friday, I think this, this one's going up, that it's, uh, yeah, there's there's quite a few destinations on there with kind of different kinds of ambitions. And again, I suppose the thing to track will be where we see destinations emerge that attract major events or what we now consider to be the major global events and where we see new events and new properties developing that uh, attract local or, or regional or global interest to those destinations. Yeah, for sure. And I think obviously also, <laughs> I think uh, one thing that I did miss off is obviously governments throwing their weights behind <laughs> weights behind major events as a strategy. Um, we all know how important that can be for, for a country and 
in actually attracting major events. I suppose that's sort of the the biggest part of the battle. So um, yeah, that that also sort of informed who was on the list too. Okay, well, as you mentioned, Sam, the full destinations report is being released across the week on sportspromedia.com. Uh, it's also available in issue 113 of Sports Pro Magazine, which you can find on the website if you have not already received it through your letterbox. That, I think, will do it for this part of the Sports Pro podcast. We're now going to be uh, dipping back into a session from Sports Pro Live and talking about what happens inside venues within those host destinations, evangelizing the future of sports venues with Henk van Raan, the Chief Innovation Officer at the Johan Cruyff Arena in Amsterdam, uh, and asking the questions is going to be Chris Stone, the Event Content Manager at Sports Pro, looking at how stadiums and venues can evolve beyond simply hosting sporting events to become bigger cultural hubs, uh, what fans can expect when attending matches in the future, and what technology is going to be delivering new experiences for them. That's coming up just after this. Hello, I'm Matt Rogan. I've spent my career creating and scaling businesses in sports and entertainment. And now I'm talking to smart leaders inside and outside sport to get their ideas on managing change and building towards a better future. You can listen in on the Playbook podcast a collection of candid, agenda-free conversations full of practical advice your company can work with. Get your new episodes right here on the Sports Pro feed and check out the rest of the series wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, good morning, good afternoon, uh, wherever you're joining us from. Very excited to be bringing you a bonus session for this year's Sports Pro Live. Uh, it's one of the sessions I was most looking forward to. Um, when we were putting together the content for Sports Pro Live, it was all around this idea of transformation, data, technology, and bringing sports forward. So this session, you know, on evangelizing the future of sports venues with the chief innovation officer at the Young Croy Arena, Hank Van Ron, is going to take us through a conversation of what they're doing and how they're taking their stadium and pushing the limits to what it's capable of doing in terms of not only turning revenue, but also increasing the fan engagement while they're there. Um, and one of the things we're really excited about, you know, we're not just looking at what happens later this year when we start to see fans return, but also looking forward a couple years into the future to really see where venues can be in terms of their role within your ecosystem in the sports industry. Um, so for there, I'm really happy to hand things over to Hank, who's going to take you through his presentation, and then we'll follow up with some questions afterwards. Thank you, uh, Chris, for this uh, great uh, introduction. Um, hello, everybody. Um, I'm very excited to have the opportunity to to explain you, uh, let's say, the, the, the life cycle uh, of the arena um, and also uh, share you our vision uh, regarding the future. So first of all, let me um, explain you a little bit more about the background of the arena. Where, where it's coming from, which mission uh, we established from the beginning and how we step for, by step transform ourselves into a nucleus for city transformation. Uh, so it's, it's more than a stadium, it's, it's a value fabric for the people of the place, the fans, the partners, and also the, the main users of our building. So, Coming to the, the, the future, let's start uh, at the beginning in 1996. 
ARENA was established as a uh, public-private entity, uh, the first uh, multifunctional stadium in Europe, state-of-the-art, with a retractable roof, um, and, and IXL's main user of our building. At that time, it was really uh, the first, uh, let's say, stadium in, in, in Europe where we not only have uh, top soccer events, but also huge events. Um, so in the beginning, it was very uh, uh, hard. Uh, we had a lot of lessons learned, but um, our mission was to create a self-sufficient financially, financially stadium. So in the beginning, we had some losses, but after the second year and the third year, we, we earned some profit. And that gives us the possibility that we are self-sufficient and uh, are able to reinvest constantly and keep the state-of-the-art concept uh, alive. So in 2000, a lot of uh, clubs, cities uh, uh, came by and they asked us how you, how you did it and how you make sure that new stadiums could be let's say not uh, become a white elephant but uh, creating value economically for the city uh, and how how do you did it and 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 how do you make uh, money uh, came out came out of that so um we shared a lesson learned and we established a new entity uh arena international and we um, we, uh, we sell services, consultancy services all over the world and, and all over the globe and, and, and share our lessons learned and, and we generate extra profit that came out of that. Um, in 2010, uh, from that success as an uh, and, and economic impact we, we generated for the city, the city asked us, to take the lead in their sustainability program in that in that time uh, sustainability was not sexy so they asked us can you not help us to be the showcase and show the world that sustainability could be sexy and also could be also uh, transformed in in, in 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 new value cases so we decided to to embrace that that ambition together with the city and we transform all our utilities for more renewable uh, utilities and that gives us the, the 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 possibility to make our stadium energy wise carbon free so that was that was a re really um a major uh, step um, and it was very successful so uh, after that uh, we, we put also solars on the roof. We, we generated more energy than we needed. Um, and one of the, the biggest challenges we saw is that how can we, uh, if we produce more energy than we needed, how can we uh, 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 give the extra energy we produce? How can we share that with our neighbors? So, and there is, is uh, the new initiative what we, what we uh, took was to create an, an, an battery. A battery where we can uh, uh, store our energy, what is left, and uh, give, give it, uh, use it by ourselves or give it to our neighbors at the moment we, know we don't need it. And that was a really 
great uh, showcase and uh, a really big impact not only for ourselves but it, it was a new standards for uh, let's say sustainable buildings and sustainable stadia so it was an, an, a great success but we had also some lessons learned and one of the eye-openers uh, starting the, the program was that uh, if we have calculated our impact as a stadium, the impact coming from the mobility, the, the choices the customers are making the moment they are traveling to the arena was five times bigger. So the real impact was not creating by the arena or, yeah, of course, when we host an event and the people are coming, but it's it's the it's uh, it's depending about the choices uh, the, the the fans are making at the moment they decided to come to the arena. So if we really want to make an impact, we have to provide these these citizens and these fans better alternative services like public transport or electric cars or uh, uh, organized transport. So th th that was a very big challenge. Uh, but the, 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 the first step what we did is to create a mobility center to steer not only the crowd outside, but also the traffic and then try to avoid traffic jam. And there we save a lot of, uh, uh pollution and, and, and CO2 outcome already. So the next step will be new way of transport, the divine new way of transport. To bring the, the the fans to the stadium, but I come that later in a minute. I will explain you our our ideas on that. In 2015, um, the city they had a lot of challenges there. The, the, we are we are located in an urban development program and and uh, from the city. So they asked us um, if we want to uh, to make uh, the, the the city uh, uh, more efficient in in terms of using. Then the digitalization, the, the, the smart city concept must be part of our, our, of our strategy and urban planning. So they asked us, can you, can you take the lead for us and show the world how you can create a smart stadium concept? So there we're looking for new partners with new capabilities like Microsoft, uh, like KPMG to help us uh, divining and program, a digitalization program, uh, how we uh, uh, make our building more digital and more steered by data and set of protocols. So it was a big revolution in our in our processes. You can imagine that. And but the uh, the goal was: can we can we create more value for uh, the the visitors? Uh, uh, to provide them better service and better fan experience, and also can we reduce cost and increase uh, uh, profit? So that was the goal uh, um, behind this digitalization of, of our building, and it works quite well. Uh, so we have now an established a living lab and a whole new ecosystem, and we challenged uh, the world to come up with a brighter solution with the brightest ideas to bring that to our living lab and put it in a program and and see if the solution in uh, work in practice uh, uh, during the events and if it is if it is working 
then we held uh, the our parts to scale up and implement it in our stadium or uh, somewhere else. So this this living lab approach, this digitalization transition was was a massive uh, uh, step forward. And so and we generate a lot of impact for our business and the value for our partners. So 2020, the city say, okay, well, it's and, and, and having an arena as a nucleus is, is working quite well. Um, so one of our biggest challenges is, you know, how we can engage the citizens of Amsterdam and how we make sure that the value you are creating or we are creating with each other, that they have also some benefits of, on that. Because you can imagine if this is an entertainment industry area, so we put a lot of pressure in terms of crowd management and safety, security, and 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 so on on this area, and also you know some some CO two and pollution, and how can we make sure that we try to avoid that, but also how can we create a uh, more value for the people of the place so that they uh, have also some benefits uh, on what we are doing, and in the beginning yes we we are creating a lot of jobs already for. This neighborhood, uh, but uh, the impact we we can do in general is much bigger than only creating jobs. And I have an, an example for you uh, uh, later. And the city asked us to scale up to increase our living lab approach and bring it uh, to the southeast of district, uh, uh, southeast district of Amsterdam. So now our living lab is not only, you know, taking care and, and, and bring the brother solution for the fans and, and our stadium, but also now uh, steering um, huge uh, transformation processes in urban development, like energy transition, like the shared economy, uh, local for local and the circular economy. These, these type of transformation is taking place with good examples in our living lab and uh, as you see on the drone we call that the donut economy so we want to increase the the profit and we want to save the planet and we want uh, we want to create value for the people um uh, with taking care about the planet and and uh, um, and also an, an social fundament so that every people and uh, every citizen is are able to join us and to uh, get some profit of our initiatives in this slide i i want to show you how we organize all these ideas and 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 uh, let's say the the teams and and the, the the program lines we have in place it's it's all about smart cities it's 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 smart and secure safe and security it's it's uh, uh, sustainability it's inclusivity so here you see the, the structure of the program um, and how we organize all these ideas coming from uh, the people, coming from our partners, coming from the city or coming from uh, the employees of Arena, coming from our business. So this helps us to prioritize our, you know, the, the projects and the pilots um, uh, on, on the right way. So on the left bottom, you see the, our ecosystem because, you know, 
innovation you can that you can do that uh, by yourself you need a whole supply chain to make really uh, uh, big innovators come through uh, so uh, we have a huge ecosystem uh, not, uh, uh, coming from the main users of our building uh, that's football earth ai apps mojo concert uh, and so on and we have uh, development partners big brands uh, globally coming from the whole world and then and they recognize us and they find us and bring their their, their roadmap and, and the ideas bringing to amsterdam and 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 work together with ecosystem on 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 great solutions on the right i i i have uh, show you and an, an value chart coming from the dutch fa and i i want to explain you a little bit more to give to give you an idea how we created value for one of our biggest clients and their fans working on you know on this on these different projects and the different values I, I will walk through the, the the chart the yellow one is the it's uh, the well-being of the fans of the 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 football federation the orange is the impact on education so th that shows us what they do which impact they make uh, with uh, the with sport on education and sport in general the green one is the sustainability uh, how how much clubs are engaged in the sustainability uh, goals of uh, the Dutch football fa the blue is the economics the profit how much jobs they generated and how much money they generated and the total impact of sports from the football FA in the netherlands and the red one is the location um, and uh, it says how many people they uh, how many fans they bring every week to the stadium and have a great time and it's in total 200 thousand more or less average so if you look at the, this pie if you look at this value it's very interesting uh, what the location as arena can do to increase these values and to give you an example if you if you bring two hundred thousand people into the stadium and they make our choices in terms of transport they generate generate a lot of co2 and a lot of pollution and how does it fit with the sustainability goals of the Dutch football FA, they are, they are they are in competition there. There is no, um, uh, 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 let's say, increase in, in, uh, um, impact for sustainability if the people are coming to the stadium every week, two hundred thousand people. So this is an example how we work with the Dutch football FA. How can we uh, design a customer journey with them? To avoid more pollution, to avoid uh, uh, increasing of C and on CO two, so that is the case, and that is why we try to to help them and help their the, the client from from the client to make better choices and to make new services. So at the moment we are designing a whole new customer journey, a more sustainable journey, um, a seamless journey 
from uh, for the for the uh, the fans of the uh, Dutch football FA. And the same thing, you you know, you can you could imagine if if you have if you're talking about the well-being, what can we do uh, for the people of the place if we in terms of safety, security, and crowd management to avoid congestions and to avoid uh, unsafe uh, situation and and creating business for the people of the place. So that's also an example where we're working on to create more values for the people, uh, but also for the profit and the business in, in terms of sport. So these are two examples uh, how we create more value in this case for the football uh, FA. And whole other use case is Coldplay. Um, Coldplay announced uh, two years ago they are not touring anymore uh, because they say the impact we generate on the, on the planet is too big. Uh, so the moment uh, what we want to do, our ambition is to, to, uh, to design green events. So there, there is also where we step in. If you look at the, the blue left on the bottom, you see the impact of the venue. This is the pie they, they, they produce, not, not us. We, they are producing this pie. So on the left bottom, you see the venue. You see this, the venue is 25% responsible for the negative impact. And the gray one, the, the right bottom, it's, it's, uh, it's the transport, it's the customer journey. So again, if we, we um, um, uh, come up with a solution to, to optimize the customer journey and, and we make our building more green, you see that we can al already uh, responsible for 50% reducing the impact on, 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 the, on, uh, on the sustainability issues. And to make it more measurable, we use the SDGs, the Sustainability Goals, as a standard to benchmark uh, our impact with other stadia, also, also with corporates. Because what you see now that most of the corporates are embracing the SDGs more and more, so if we uh, help Goldplay on, let's say, uh, the planet on this SDG, and we say uh, Microsoft is helping, Honeywell is helping, because they have to also embrace the same SDGs, then you see a multiplier. Then you see a multiplier impact uh, for the whole supply chain. And that's exactly what we are doing. We, we connect all these challenges and all these capabilities, all these partners, and we connect it on the same uh, SDC, what they have embraced. So this is another use case, and you see that if you, if you solve the, the planet, the P from, from planet, and you're creating value for the fans and the people, the profit will come automatically. So that's basically our approach. We, we, we believe that if we help our customers creating uh, added value by saving the planet and creating value for their customers, 
Uh, Coldplay on the end of the day will choose the arena as the location where they do the shows. So again, we have 25 years experience uh, of creating value now over the years. Um, and this is this structure, this figure shows us how we plot these all these initiatives on the, the, the P from people, the social fundament and the, the P for the planet, the, 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 out, the, uh, the, the, the outside ring. Um, how, and we plot them and, and give more structure on the impact we have generated so far. And, you know, it, it's a process but it will not stop uh, anymore. And, it, and I want to give you one example to make it more tangible. And that is the digital skills for the, the fans and the people of the place in our neighborhood. And that is education. Uh, we have uh, done two semesters, semesters last year together with Microsoft. And we, uh, and one semester, 30 students was to transform woman on Asia, the woman who wants to make a career switch going uh, to, uh, to a data scientist, become a data scientist. And we transformed 30 ladies together with Microsoft. And the other semester was 30 refugees to become an Azure administrator. And at the end of the day, all these 60 people, persons, find a job in the IT. So if you calculated the outcome and the impact in you know creating jobs and and connecting people to to find a job the the impact um uh, the societal impact but also the financial impact is enormous so and it for us it was an easy job but it's you know it's it's a, a way of looking at your role it's a way of looking at uh, the impact you can make your partners. What what we have defined now uh, to to uh, engage, uh, let's say, uh, initiatives and, and and new business partners, we define a new proposition. One is how we can create so societal impact and plot out on the SDGs of these companies and make the connection with the ecosystem and and search for the same SDGs. In, from, from the from the division that um, how we can make a multiplier and how we can find the companies with the right capabilities and the same uh, ambition on the same sustainability goals. So the societal uh, impact, of course, also the business impact, the profit is very important, of course, uh, and the the public and the culture uh, value. So. Uh, what is changing uh, in the old way of thinking is that we also now uh, looking at the societal impact. And if you look at the big brands, you see that more and more is, uh, the, the purpose of the company, companies are changing and they are more related to saving the planet and create, create, creating jobs of the future. So the interest of these companies are also moving in that direction. And there is exactly where we looking at for these kind of partners to join us and to work with us, work with us, 
and make step in the in the future uh creating a better world creating um uh and shaping the new economy and the new value for every stakeholder so my conclusion is that uh, we are doing this now for 25 years uh arena uh, uh in and the stadium in general could and should be taking taking a, a bigger role uh not only hosting lands but also in in urban development in huge transformations processes uh, that's my opinion because a, a stadium is is a place where people meet is a place where everyone comes together and in, in, in to seek it it's it's um, it's um, uh, and it could be a nucleus for new business new innovation and creating value for everyone print digital events podcasts sports pro well thank you for that hank I, I i enjoyed that and you know i've got a couple questions myself and then there's a couple questions from the audience that we'll, we'll bring in and i think the first one we'll start on um you know the the effort around sustainability one of the things we've heard when we speak to people is there's this uh this idea that sustainability is an expense that in order to to be a sustainable venue it requires extra costs that aren't necessarily profitable and you've obviously touched on in your presentation that that's not been the case for you so if you could just elaborate a little bit more you know if i'm if i'm someone at a, another football club that sits in your role you know how am i talking to my cfo or someone that's in charge of budgets to sort of have this conversation around why this as a business impact is something we should pursue yeah, it's a good question. Uh, yeah, our experience is that you know, if you uh, uh, divine a case, uh, a business case, uh, you don't don't look at only the revenues. You know, the return on investment. You have also have to look uh, in the total impact in terms of CO two uh, reduction and. and in terms of uh, let's say uh, innovation and lessons learned. Because on the end of the day, uh, and n now maybe now customers are not uh, um, uh, choose directly for Arena, but I show you two cases: one of Coldplay and one of Dutch Football They will choose for a location what is more sustainable. They preferred to play and uh, to play in that type of events uh, location. So it's a matter of time, and maybe not now, but it's a matter of time. There, there will be new regulations, environmental regulations, that if a venue was not uh, sustainable enough, you you don't get a license to host to to host any, any events. So it's it's a matter of time, you know. Uh, so and we said internal that that was our, our policies. Every initiative. What in terms of Stanley, what happened? What happened? Uh, return of uh, investment of ten years. It's a no-brainer. We will do it. So that is very important. Ten years was a, a critical line. Uh, and also, what we did is every time we replace systems, because you know of the life cycle, we choose for a more renewable system. So uh, uh, and that helps also a lot. So two two strategies, 
if you do some replacement in your building, choose more renewables systems. And uh, second, and, and uh, return on investment 10 years, it's a no-brainer for us. And at the end of the day, the, the customer will choose uh, your building, your venue, because they will identify themselves. They, they want to play in a more sustainable building than building who are not sustainable. And I, I appreciate that answer. And I think it, it leads quite nicely into a question from our audience. And I'll add an extra layer to it to kind of blend this all together. And, you know, we, we had a question from Sasha and it was, you know, do you believe the bulldozing of the old Wembley Stadium was inevitable or smart in the long run? And I think I want to tie this into the comment you made, which is, you know, does this require someone to, to build a new stadium, a new infrastructure, if they didn't already have this idea of sustainability in mind when they designed it? Or is there a way to incorporate, you know, an older venue um, to start upgrading this? I, I know you mentioned your last answer talking about, you know, you're always having to upgrade your facility. It's just making those conscious decisions to upgrade as you go to more sustainable things. Um, but, you know, for some, is it better is it more feasible to, to kind of start from scratch or is it, uh, you know, replacing what you've already got? Yeah, you know, uh, ideally you make your building smart and sustainable by design. That That's the most efficient way. But, you know, the world is changing rapidly. So we don't know how the world look like in, in three or four years. So flexibility and resiliency is one of the key uh, competence of a stadium, in my opinion. So the board, the policies, the strategy, that, that must be incorporated that you are, you know, uh, more resilient, more flexible than maybe in the past. Because that enables you to to keep your building uh, state of the art or modern or uh, uh, attractive for for your for your customers. Yeah, excellent. So when we're talking about sort of upgrading, and you know, I think I'm obviously biased being American, and there's this whole growth of these, you know, the SoFi Stadium in LA. You've got the the the, the Cowboys mm -hmm. Stadium. You know, there's all these big super stadiums. So we're looking, you know, European stadiums in general tend to be a bit older. You know, as we're looking at upgrading towards this smart city, is there a particular area you would tell someone? You know, because our audience is, you know, we've got people from Real Madrid, we've got people from, you know, Arsenal, these big clubs. But we also have a lot of audience members that come from lower tier um, football clubs. You know, in your opinion, is there a particular area you would start in terms of, you know, this development towards a smart stadium? Is it should you focus on sustainability efforts first? Should you focus on the fan engagement side of, you know, improving your, your venue? Is there a particular area you say you got you would prioritize um, you know, if you're working with limited budgets in terms of upgrading your, your venue? Yeah, I, it's, it's depending about this case by case. But in, ideally, I, I, I will start, I would start by uh, the sustainability approach. Uh, I think, you know, it, it's, an, it's a top priority more and more, uh, not only in, in Europe, but also in countries. You see, we, it, it's, it's high uh, placed on the agenda in every country. So, and I think, and I think in, in the, in the partnership you have as a stadium or as a club, you, you don't do, do it by yourself. You have to challenge your partners. 
imagine if you have Coca-Cola or you have Microsoft and they are sponsor of your building and this building is not sustainable. They walk away on the end of the day. So why do you not challenge them and say, okay, can we not make a coalition of the willing and say in two years, three years, four years, five years, our building is climate neutral. Engage them, challenge them uh, in, ter in, in terms of, you know, creating visibility and, 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 and exposure and, and also knowledge. Uh, and, and, you know, to combine all these capabilities and bring them on one table. In my opinion, my experience is if you don't start with this, you lose the game. Anyway, anyhow. So give it a try, bring these people to the table and have an open conversation and say, we have our stadium. We want to, we have an ambition to be in a climate neutral stadium. And we have the brightest and the best capabilities in-house. Why should we not combine them and help us together and make our building sustainable? Brilliant. And I've got another specific question. How familiar you are with West Ham? Uh, Mark wants to ask a question. Um, West Ham uh, have moved recently from their, their beloved ground at, at uh, Upton Park and moved over to the Olympic Stadium. Um, in terms of stadium experience, you know, what can you as a venue um, owner do to increase fan engagement? Or particularly, you know, we look at West Ham or, you know, Everton's about to move into a new stadium. Uh, how can you maintain, you know, the essence of the, the footballing spirit and keep that fan engagement high? Uh, well, um, you know, I don't know. I, I'm not familiar with the case, but what I can only tell what we did. Uh, what we did is... Uh, because we don't know what we don't know, and there, there, there are so much bright, bright uh, solution in the world. And you know, if you look at the startups, the scale-ups, th there is so much possible. So what we did, we we uh, we organized a European call, subsidized uh, door Brussels, a European call, and challenged the world to help us with the fan experience and come up with the brightest ideas you know, what they can think of. It was organized and facilitated by KPMG. And the subsidy come again, come, came from uh, Europe, from Brussels. So, and we call it reimagined football. And you don't believe what we, what, what kind of solutions they sent us. It's, it's enormous. More than 1,500 different solutions they sent us and so it was a big challenge to you know to validate all these all these solutions and we at the end of the day we award uh, 15 of them and and one of the the award was uh, it was subsidized by uh, by brussels we helped them to to uh, bring that idea alive in an in a pilot uh, phase tested and if, and if the test was okay, we, we helped them to scale up. So now we have, I believe from, from the 15 startups, we have now, I think, five new partners, uh, solution partners, who are uh, stepping in our ecosystem. We do business with them. And, and I actually adapted, fully adapted the solutions, the Dutch football, fully adapted solutions. So again, 
my opinion is, you know, you there is so much possible nowadays, and um, there are so much bright, bright uh, smart guys in the world, startups, you know, scale-ups. Uh, challenge them and 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 say, well, this is our venue, this is our audience, this is our vision. We we like to innovate. Come to us, help us, and create value for each other. That's excellent. I'm I'm glad to hear you bring up Reimagine Football. Your colleague Sander has been on one of our previous events and spoke about it. Um, we had Hale Kirkles um, from the Dutch FA. We've had John Baptiste on speaking about Reimagine yeah. Football. So I guess the last question I would sort of bring up is along these lines, and you kind of touched on a little bit. You know, what is the importance of collaboration? You know, particularly when we're talking about the sustainability approach. And you know, what what can you know you offer? Or I say, you know, are you open? You know, if anyone's listening to this saying, Hank, I've got no idea how to do this. You know, what's the importance of collaboration? Are you open to, you know, having these conversations and, you know, get people along the right path? Yeah, of course, I, we are always open to, you know, to share ideas with colleagues. So uh, this that's always okay. Uh, so um, we want to help the industry. It's also, you know, uh, one of our uh, uh, goals to, to you know to help each other. So yes, we are always open to um, to help each other. Um, it's depending you know how big the, the question is. So yes, we are we are always open to make the industry better and bigger and more profitable and more sustainable. Awesome. Well, thank you for joining us this morning, Hank. That, that was a really great session. I think it's on an incredibly important topic, you know, from the, the digital transformation side as well as the sustainability side. Um, so really appreciate getting your expertise on this. Um, and like I said, if anybody hears that and you need help, you, you've got someone here to offer some guidance, and that's hopefully what we can provide. Um, so thank you once again for joining us, Hank. And I look forward to catching up soon. Okay. Success. Bye-bye. Join the conversation with the Sports Pro community. Follow us on Twitter at SportsPro and at SportsPro Events. Find us on Instagram at sportspro.media and connect to SportsPro Media on LinkedIn, where you can also become a part of our specialist OTT community. SportsPro, connecting and inspiring the business world of sport. All right, I think we are coming to the end of this SportsPro podcast. Thank you to Hank Van Run and Chris Stone for their time just there. Speaking of sports pro events, guys, we have a couple on the slate. One coming up next week, the return, Ed, of the Sports Pro Insider Series. What can you tell us about that? Yep, so it's taking place on the 19th of May. This one's going to be focusing on esports. Obviously, it's enjoyed quite a quite a rise, a lot of eyes on it over the last year and a bit, obviously, with the, the initial lockdown and you know a lot of traditional sports organizations turning to gaming and esports to help entertain their fans. So yeah, so this one's going to be looking at how they've carried that momentum and also how um, how some of esports' approaches can be adopted to to traditional sports. So yeah, so it's quite a quite an eclectic sort of esports take on on competitive gaming. But no, there's some great names on there. We've got Drone Racing League, um, Team Liquid, NBA 2K League. So it's a pre- it's a pretty substantial lineup. So so do check it out if you can. Yeah, sportsproinsiderseries.com is the place to go to register for that and of course you can explore our vast back catalogue of sports pro insider series events they are all available for free on demand it's a fantastic resource there um whatever your interests are in the sports industry sam we have another major event coming up 
with a specific regional focus. What can you tell us about Sports Pro APAC? Well, Owen, what I can tell you about Sports Pro APAC is that it's happening on the 7th and 8th of July. But in the build-up to that event, which is going to feature the head of sports from Star and Disney India, um, the marketing director at KO Sports, and the president of the International Paralympic Committee, among others, um, we've got a series of events in the build-up to it. Uh, The first one, I believe, happened this week on Wednesday, which had a specific focus on India. But um, fear not, Owen. The, uh, the next one is on the 26th of May, and this one's going to be focusing on China. Already for that one, we've got speakers confirmed from Borussia Dortmund, World Table Tennis, the UFC. Um, so yeah, 26th of May for that next one in the build-up to Sports Pro APAC on the 7th and 8th of July. Fantastic. Exciting and intriguing times ahead in the Asia-Pacific region when it comes to sport and uh... A lot of those themes being explored at Sports Pro APAC. SportsProAPAC.com, unsurprisingly, is the place to go for information and to register for a pass. Okay, guys, job done on that front. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks again, as I said, to Hank Van Raan and to Chris Stone. Thank you to Ed Dixon. Cheers, Owen. I'll get back behind the decks, as you, as you put it at the start. Not that there's any editing to do. Uh, on this show ever and uh, thank you as well to Sam Carp. Cheers Owen, cheers Ed, nice to see you both Thanks to all of you for listening we'll be back with you again very soon Bye bye The Sports Pro Podcast is published by Sports Pro Media The producer is Ed Dixon 